Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of How's the Pressure? I am your host, Haley Winter, and today we'll be finishing up our conversation about Carpal Tunnel. Let me introduce our second set of panelists who will give their perspective on this condition. First up, we have Joe Muscolino, a soft tissue-oriented chiropractor who has been in the health and wellness field for decades. He has experience teaching massage therapists in the academic setting, and he currently has an impressive library of bodywork-centered videos that are a valuable resource for health and wellness practitioners. You can find a link to those videos on the How's the Pressure website. Our second guest is Irene Lyon, a nervous system expert who will be drawing on her experience in Feldenkrais and somatic experiencing to address this condition through the lens of trauma. Our third guest will be James Earls, who will be focusing on this condition from a movement perspective, specifically how we can include long chain movements and look at the body with a more holistic and whole body approach. Our fourth guest will be Robin Scher, who will help us look at the subject from the craniosacral point of view. And our fifth and final guest is Marjorie Brooke, who will be helping us understand how scar tissue plays a role in this condition. All of my guests today have had decades of experience in the field and are teachers and educators in their specific field of speciality. As usual, there are going to be a lot of different opinions and perspectives that will be shared over the course of this and other upcoming episodes. I want to be clear that I'm not trying to put one opinion over another. I believe my job is to bring in experienced people and ask them good questions. We've got a lot to get to, so I give you the second panel on Carpal Tunnel. All right, now we're going to go ahead and turn to Joe Muscolino to bring a soft tissue-oriented chiropractic perspective to this conversation. Hi, Joe. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Haley. Thank you very much for having me back here. It's my pleasure. So talk to me about Carpal Tunnel. So carpal tunnel syndrome is a syndrome that I must admit personally, I have not had wondrous success with on the whole with all the different patients, clients I've seen over the last 33 counting clinic at school, 35 years. So first, what is carpal tunnel syndrome? It's, there's a tunnel in the carpal bones that is created by the floor being the two rows of proximal distal rows of carpals. And then on the ulnar side, the pisiform sticks up and the hook of the hamate sticks up and creates a wall that goes up. And then on the other side, the tubercle and the scaphoid and the tubercle and the trapezium form a wall that goes up. And then you put a ceiling, a roof across those two walls, which is either called the transverse carpal ligament or the flexor retinaculum. So you have this contained space that is contained by the floor and walls for the bones and the fibrous sheath of tissue, the, you know, the flexor retinaculum across the top. And the beauty is that whatever's in that tunnel, that contained space, is kind of protected from forces from the outside. The other problem, though, is once you have a contained space, if you still do somehow traumatize, irritate those tissues that are in there, then swelling has nowhere to go to escape and then presses on those structures. So there's, there's a pro and a con, an advantage and a disadvantage to having that carpal tunnel structure. So what are the structures in there? Well, there are nine long finger flexor tendons. There's four tendons of flexor digitorum superficialis that go to the index, middle, ring, and little finger. There are four tendons of flexor digitorum profundus that go to the index, middle, ring, and little finger. And there's one tendon of flexor pollicis longus that goes to the thumb. They're all extrinsic muscles of the hand in that they start outside of the hand and go into the hand through the carpal tunnel in this case. And they're all finger flexors. And they're all long because they're extrinsic. So they're all long finger flexors. And we have a nerve that goes in there and that's the median nerve. And the median nerve innervates primarily the uh, muscles of the thenar eminence group, which means primarily muscles that move the thumb, and it gets a couple of the lumbar coals that move the other fingers, a couple of other fingers. And that's motor. Sensory-wise, the median nerve innervates the anterior side of the palm and fingers of the thumb, index, middle, and the radial half of the ring finger, and then that spills over onto the posterior dorsal side of those fingers, somewhere between the proximal and distal interphalangeal joints. 
So basically, sensory-wise, if there's compression of the median nerve, you would feel it somewhere in that thumb, index, middle, half of ring finger, most likely anterior side, maybe spilling onto the tips on the other side, and maybe so and somewhat into the palm there. And motor-wise, it might lead to weakness of the thumb. My first patient ever in senior clinic in chiropractic school, so we're talking what, 1984 out in Western States Chiropractic College in Portland, Oregon, was a car mechanic who had carpal tunnel syndrome. And he didn't know it from any sensation loss, from any pain or anything like that, any other paresthesia, altered sensation. He knew it because he'd be holding the wrench to work up above his head, you know, in the car that was on the lift. And he thought he was gripping the wrench, but the wrench would slip out of his hand and slip, you know, fall to the ground, clanking onto the ground. And it was because he couldn't make the grip with his thumb, even though he felt like he was willing it to occur. The innervation to the flexor policy, well, and also not just the thumb, but also the flexor uh, digitorum profundus for the fingertips of grabbing and maybe a superficialis, you know, flexing in at the other joints of the fingers there, that he was willing it to occur but he wasn't able to generate the strength because the signal wasn't getting through the carpal tunnel region to his fingers. Uh, a quick aside on history. That was during the history I learned a very good lesson. I asked him in the history for other questions, do you drink coffee? And he said, a little bit. And if I would have just said, oh, a little bit and written it in my chart notes, I would have left it at that. But I went a little further to say, well, what's a little bit? And he said, Oh, about 15 cups a day. <laughs> he was the calmest person I ever saw in the world. He was a, such a type B personality. I can't imagine him without coffee. But I mean, he literally would drink a pot of coffee before his wife woke up, then a pot of coffee at breakfast with her, then a cup or two during the morning break. My point was, when people give you a term that is not precise, it is incumbent upon you in the history to investigate further what they mean by that. It had nothing to do with this carpal tunnel. But anyway, now let's get to the carpal tunnel. When I have had good luck working on carpal tunnel, it has been where much of the swelling that occurs in the carpal tunnel is due to an irritation of those three muscles that I listed before. And when I could relax, inhibit, down-regulate, whatever term we want. Stop it being from locked, tight, hypertonic musculature. So many adjectives for this. When I could relax those muscles and that would relax the pulling force through the carpal tunnel and I could work with them for their postures. Like someone like, you know, there's a reason why there's a, uh, what would you call a wrist rest when you're typing at a, at a computer. The reason is to keep your hand from falling into extension by your wrist being lower than the keyboard. And when you do that, you stretch those muscles that go to the long finger flexor muscles that go to the fingers and pull them taut. And you then contract the finger muscles when you type, which means you're creating a contraction, internal intrinsic tension in the muscles while they're externally being pulled long, taut. So you're creating tension in two ways. So working with their postures and movement patterns and loosening those muscles and then doing a little bit of fascial spreading across the palm, et cetera, just to loosen any adhesions in that area. And then I would also check out for any hypomobilities in the carpals. But those are the people where I've had good luck with when the swelling has really become a chronic swelling in the wrist area, I mean, sure, we can talk about ice and all that too, but I have not always had good luck with all the people with whom I've worked with carpal tunnel. And then, of course, some people get carpal tunnel. Pregnant women very often get it because they get the swelling in their body and the areas that are more sensitive to swelling become more acute. And some people fall on an outstretched wrist area. And by the way, a note for a manual therapy therapist, massage therapist, please, whenever you work with a flat palm in any way on your client, which is a great contact because it's in between finger pad, thumb pads, and bigger contacts like elbow forearm, then please always brace that contact. When I say brace and support, I mean literally over the point of contact where your contact is on the client. 
And some people do it by placing the, or how to describe this with audio podcast, placing the other flat palm carpal area across their carpal. So one hand is kind of parallel, parallel over the other. I like more using my thumb web of my other support bracing hand over the actual point of contact there so that you protect your wrist area because the wrist is a fairly fragile joint. So um, I've kind of, oh, and then certainly people will also sometimes recommend stretching to stretch those tight muscles that go across. And I do agree that it can be a good idea, but you have to be careful because stretching the flexors of the fingers involves putting the, usually putting the hand into extension. And that will increase the um, compression in the carpal tunnel by about two times over a neutral posture. And in fact, that's an orthopedic assessment test called prayer test for carpal tunnel syndrome. The other one is Phelan's test, which is going into full flexion. So whenever I recommend stretching of muscles of the forearm, whether it's flexors or extensors, I'm always sensitive to whether or not it aggravates their wrist area. So I'd love to give some real like, oh, wow, I love carpal tunnel. Here's the way you can do it. Here's the trick. Here's the great thing. But I have to say that I found carpal tunnel to be pretty tough to work with for me. And do you know of any other treatment options that people explore to try and solve carpal tunnel syndrome? Well, first, I'm going to say that very often there's no saying if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I have had patients come to me who were told that they had carpal tunnel. And they didn't have carpal tunnel. They had, they had, I said, well, why do you think you have carpal tunnel? Or why does your doctor think you do? And they said, I got tingling in my little finger. I'm like, oh, goodness, that's ulnar nerve. The ulnar nerve doesn't go in the carpal tunnel, okay, at all. It goes in something called Guyon's Canal or something else, but it does not go in the carpal tunnel. And sometimes, with all due respect, I mean, medical physicians are fabulous for visceral organs and altering blood chemistry, if you like the way they alter blood chemistry, and surgeries that when there's no other recourse, they can save your life, etc. But most medical physicians are really fairly poorly informed when it comes to musculoskeletal, neuromyofascioskeletal conditions. So I will never trust anyone else's diagnosis or assessment. I will always do my own verbal history and physical exam. And I do a very thorough one. I usually spend an hour and 15 minutes on history and exam. I book a two hour first visit to then have another 45 minutes to do treatments. And after that, I'm a soft tissue oriented chiropractor. I do hour long treatments. Most of it is massage, but also stretching, joint mobilization. I can do ultrasound, electric muscle stim, some exercises for them, et cetera. So I will say that sometimes they don't have carpal tunnel. Sometimes they have carpal tunnel, but they also have another median nerve compression syndrome. What probably Whitney is going to describe or describe if he's before me on this as a double crush syndrome. In other words, the median nerve can also be compressed, not just at the carpal tunnel, but between the two heads of the pronator teres, between the pectoralis minor and the rib cage, which is called pectoralis minor syndrome, a version of thoracic outlet syndrome between the clavicle and the first rib, which is called costoclavicular syndrome, another version of thoracic outlet syndrome, between the anterior and middle scalenes, which is called anterior scalene syndrome, another version of thoracic outlet syndrome. Maybe the person has a cervical rib, a genetic anomaly that hits about 1% to 2% of the population, which is called cervical rib thoracic outlet syndrome. Maybe they have compression of the C5, C6, C7, C8, T1 nerve roots somewhere up at the spine, which contribute to create the median nerve, which goes through the carpal tunnel. So whenever someone comes in and they have any signs or symptoms of carpal tunnel syndrome, median nerve dysfunction, motor or sensory, then I will always differentially assess out every other point Maybe they have a trigger point somewhere up in their shoulder area, teres muscle, something that's, that's referring down to the median nerve distribution, making someone think it's carpal tunnel. So I haven't answered your question yet. What I've said is sometimes people who come in saying they were told they have carpal tunnel don't. 
And sometimes people who have carpal tunnel, they also have other compressions of median nerve that if you get rid of the other ones that are more easily, in my opinion, treatable. I mean, goodness, thoracic outlet syndromes are tight scalenes, tight pecs, and postural dysfunction. And those are much more amenable. Pronator teres syndrome is a tight pronator teres. That's amenable to manual therapy, movement therapy. Um, certainly it could be tougher if it's up at the neck due to a disc or something, but still there could be contributing factors up in the neck that could lead to it. Myofascial trigger point referral patterns, that's very treatable. That I want to make sure I clear everything else that could be contributing or causing those symptoms. To then say, do I know other treatments? I have seen some amazing things with Eastern modalities, with acupuncture, et cetera, that I cannot, being very Western-based, and very mechanical, physically mechanically and neuromechanically based, to say, let's look at the anatomy and physiology, kinesiology, and figure out why this is happening and what we can do, that I can't explain whether it's electric currents going through fascial pathways or whatever is posited. I don't know, but I've seen some pretty amazing things with acupuncture. So certainly before someone goes for surgery, let's say, I would certainly recommend that they explore some of the other options that might not be so Western based. And what is your experience with surgery success with carpal tunnel syndrome? Um, I've had some patients, I mean, like I've been in practice a very long time and you know, I, I want to just touch on something. There's something called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when I already believe something, I'm biased toward believing it. I want to confirm that. I will look at all the information that backs up what I already believe in, and I will ignore whatever doesn't back up what I believe in. I will cherry pick whatever I want to listen to. I've been in practice a third of a century. I have seen a lot of Patients come and go that can talk to me about either what they're having at that moment or what they've had in their past. And I have had some patients who have tried all the manual therapy things. They've tried vitamin B6 is another one that even Phelan, the orthopedic surgeon for which carpal tunnel is named, talked about people should try vitamin B6 in megadoses, not the RDA, the recommended daily allowance of it, and have tried all sorts of things. And they're still in a lot of pain or they can't pick something up or whatever it is. And look, if you compress a nerve too long, you kill neurons in that nerve. And neurons, once they're dead, they don't reproduce anymore. You might regenerate neurons that are irritated, but you don't reproduce most neurons in your body once they're dead. So there's a danger in saying, hey, let's try this and let's try that and let's try this and let's try that. I have known patients who have had, quote unquote, miracle cures with getting the carpal tunnel surgery. I've also known patients, I knew one patient, she had the carpal tunnel surgery done twice on one side and three times on the other because the cutting of the surgery incisions created scar tissue adhesions that then predisposed her to the carpal tunnel syndrome again. So I always say surgery should be your last recourse. But when you have exhausted the other more conservative means, I'm not against surgery at all. I'm not against drugs. Drugs, second to last recourse, surgery, last recourse. But strong anti-inflammatories, maybe even pack, prednisone. Do I like those things? No. But I'd rather try a medrol pack of prednisone, cortisone, in effect, and see if it calms down the carpal tunnel, where then by doing modification of my posture and movement patterns, I can then keep it at bay. I'd rather have them do that than have the surgery. I'd rather have them get well with my massage and soft tissue work or acupuncture than the drugs. But I'm a realist. Manual therapists and Eastern practitioners cannot, movement therapists cannot get rid of everything. All right. Thank you so much for giving your thoughts on this condition. Uh, if you listeners are interested in learning more about Joe's work and perspective, you can find him at learnmuscles.com. And if you go to How's the Pressure website, you'll find a link for a free month to his video subscription service, and you'll get access to over a 1,000 continuing education video lessons for manual therapists like you. So thank you so much, Joe. Thank you so much, Kelly. My pleasure.
All right, so now we're going to turn to Irene Lyon, who's a nervous system expert, and she's going to provide us some context for how trauma plays into this condition. Thanks for joining us, Irene. Hey there, Haley. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about carpal tunnel. Sure. So, um, you know, carpal tunnel is interesting because we see it as just physical, and it is, obviously. There's inflammation through that that tunnel and the wrist and all the tendons and muscles are I've had it myself, you know, screaming and, and sore. And if I think about it from a purely physical point of view, yes, it could be due to repetition and strain, and it may very well be the case. Um, from an embodied perspective, there's a lot of work that people do manually and they don't get carpal tunnel, right? It's like, so what, what's, what's going on there? From what I've seen, it's often because, and I'm going to put my trauma hat on, but also my Feldenkraisian hat, which is the nervous system and how we use our whole self. It's usually because there isn't a distribution of work through the whole body. So we might use our hands for, say, a job. Um, I'm thinking of an awesome documentary that I watched a long time ago called When the Moment Sings. It's, an, it's a Norwegian documentary. And they go into, I think it's the country of Ghana. And I don't know if you've seen this, Haley. It's great. It's so good. Um, it's on YouTube, When the Moment Sings. And they have these people, like the, 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 the culture, the community, and they're always using their hands. Like the guys are on the railroad tracks with these massive you know, devices and manually taking out tracks and doing this work. And the women are pounding grain and they're washing all their clothes by hand and the thing is is when you watch it they're using their whole body they're connected through their feet they're moving their pelvis they're moving their spine they're moving their shoulders they're moving their feet they're singing they're dancing they're connecting so there's like this huge global organism doing this thing with their hands whereas when we go to say the grocery store. I mean, this is where you see it so often with checkout at checkouts, you know, when you buy your groceries, often these people are wearing these big wrist braces because they're doing this repetitive strain motion. And yes, it's not good, but often when you watch them and maybe, you know, next time you're at a grocery store, watch, they're just moving their arms. There isn't this movement of the whole body. They're not, you know, it's like, it's not happening. And so there's a lot of the movement that we do, I think, in Western culture that is so um, disconnected from the whole self. And then you plug in, I hate my job, this sucks, you know, you're not engaging with your people that are coming through, and you are literally putting your system into this parasympathetic, this dorsal tone shut down. Not many people, when you go to a Safeway, are happy to be working there. You know, it's just, it just isn't the case. Whereas you go to some cultures and you, you're in such a situation and people are exuberant and loving it and they, they're just happy they have a job, right? And um, it's so interesting when you start to see those things. So in terms of carpal tunnel, that area, it's like our bodies are meant to actually do a lot of physical work but they're not meant to do physical work with just one part. Does that make sense? It does. It also, I think, is a really important concept that will be, it's, it's so, it, it has the opportunity to be really well-received by clients where it's like, hey, you love to do this thing. You know, let's let's take for instance the not necessarily the cashier that doesn't like to do their their work, but yeah. let's say there's something you really love to do, but it's giving you this 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 this, this repetitive injury. Uh, it may be that you need to do it more, and not by more like more times, but with more of you, and yes. find a new way to do it that is more enjoyable in your body, and then you get to do the thing you love more times. More. Actually, totally. It's um, I just came out of teaching a weekend workshop and we teach Feldenkrais and movement and embodied practice. And, you know, the first day there's this tone in the room of like, it's like the best way I could describe it is things are very sharp, very linear. Right. And you can, you can sense if you close your eyes, I don't know if anybody's watched the show daredevil on Netflix, but like the guy is blind 
you know, and he can see and feel and everything because he's because he doesn't have his vision. So he's so embodied in his space. And when the movement workshop starts, it feels like there's just this dullness and this lack of vibrancy in the, each organism that is a human. As we start to get people to feel how everything's connected and move with all of the structures and in relationship to the ground and the people around them and we play a lot of games at the end you can stand there and close your eyes it's like this like it's like there's an orb in the room it's just like this humming there's just this difference and it's not because we've done anything necessarily groundbreaking we've just actually reconnected people back to their bodies back to their ground and back to the people around them. And when you can have all those three ingredients together, you can do a lot of work with your body without it breaking down from my experience. All right. Thank you so much, Irene. You're welcome. So that was Irene Lyon. You can find out more about her and her work at their website, which is irenelyon.com. So now I'm going to bring in James Earls, who will give us his thoughts from the perspective of a massage therapist with a focus on combining movement and manual therapy. Welcome, James. Hi, Haley. Well, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you very much for the invitation. So talk to me about carpal tunnel. Carpal tunnel, again, um, needs a lot of differential diagnosis, making sure the kind of thoracic outlet and, and so forth. Um, again, I, we've got all of the, the normal treatments, the kind of the stripping lights of the, the forearm flexors, making sure that they're as untrigger pointed, as, as eased as, as possible, opening the carpal tunnel. Um, quite often, the one thing I would play with is the reversal of the kind of the origin insertion idea. So quite often, whenever we're kind of stripping out, maybe using active um, stretches. Um, that's normally shown as kind of engagement into the forearm, either engaging towards or away from the wrist with the hand moving away from the forearm. Quite often, I like to reverse that and have the hands placed onto the table and then have the elbow moving away from the hand. Um, that takes a little bit of the stress off the, the proximal tissue. So if you imagine the, the, so the, the tendons are inflamed kind of passing through the, the carpal tunnel. If I'm always kind of using the hand movement, then we get a lot more local stretch into the carpal area. So for me, engaging the um, wrist and uh, uh, finger flexors a little bit more uh, proximal, closer to the uh, uh, elbow, and engaging that tissue initially down towards the wrist. And then you know, if it's really quite proximal, then even just uh, elbow extension can be sometimes enough to start easing that, that tissue a little bit. And then gradually working down a little bit closer to the, to the wrist. So, and you know, the, the client will feel the, the change that the elbow extension is no longer quite getting it. So they can start using a little bit of wrist extension, but it's not moving the hand away from the forearm. It's moving the forearm away from the wrist. And then if they're, particularly if they're, they're standing, then they can start exploring all the, the variations of deviations on their radial deviations, rotation, whatever might be happening. So, and that movement can be coming from the, right, right from the shoulder complex. So again, it's, um, for me, that an underpinning um, benefit for the client, they get to feel the relationship between the shoulder girdle and the wrist, that it's not just about the hand. This is not just a hand-wrist issue. It's like, okay, there's there's other stuff that's involved. And so any, for me, it's sometimes there's a disconnect between um, sometimes as therapists, we go, okay, so um, yes, you've got carpal tunnel, but I can see that your shoulder's in a certain position, so I'm going to give you these stretches. And quite often the client's going, why am I stretching my shoulder when it's all about my wrist? And and we sometimes encourage or, or don't necessarily help with that dynamic if they're lying on their back and I'm just going through the normal kind of stripping and taking the hand away from the wrist movements. It's like, well, you know, I haven't actually done anything to connect it in to connect my work to their shoulder 
Whereas if their hand is planted and they're taking their body in different directions, it's like, okay, they get to feel the immediate response. So you go, oh, okay, so this is why I might need to or could benefit from a little bit of more shoulder mobility, whatever it may be, or a little bit more elbow strength or you know, whatever whatever recommendation that might need to be added into the, the, the treatment modality. So I've noticed a trend where... Uh taking a condition that's that typically people think is isolated to a particular joint or an area and then not necessarily moving from that joint or area but from something further up the chain into more of the body uh, and I'm curious what is the the this kind of overall uh, perspective or mechanic that that drives this kind of like I'm just checking up the up the line yep um, well I think I'd, you know I, Right back in the early 90s, my, you know, the first lesson in aromatherapy, whenever I, I taught it, is it's an holistic treatment. We look at the body as a whole. And you know, that, I think that's, that's true in any manual therapy class, any massage therapy class. Um, we, we need to look at the client as a whole. And then as soon as we get into treatment of, or management of uh, conditions, then we almost got, come down into a physical therapy approach. And um, so you've got tennis elbow, we'll, we'll cross fiber friction, we'll strip out the flexors or extensors according to, to what's needed. So, well, and those are all necessary and useful in the, the management of the symptoms. But, you know, we've all said it, the, the symptoms are not, they're there for a reason. They're, there's a cause behind it. And sometimes it is straightforward. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, as Floyd said. Sometimes it is just a, a local trauma. Sometimes it's just a change in, in training. Um, so change the mechanics. Sometimes it is just local, but you know, quite often we need to um, make sure that we start looking a little bit more widely through the rest of the system. And and I don't think we've had a good enough understanding of the mechanics of how the rest of the the body kind of connects in. We've we've always known it. We've had some stories about kind of kinetic chains and different different bits and pieces. Um, but it's only in the in the last what, 10, 15 years where we started getting a little bit more sophistication with the the, the myofascia, the fascial stories, and certainly better understanding the functional mechanics that we can start kind of taking this this view a little little wider with uh, and with more sophistication. And even if it's not necessarily that okay, I'm getting to the the cause, at least I'm helping my client make the connection between their affected area and the rest of their body and in manual therapy massage therapy especially we've had you know well we can get our clients more connected by having long cross joint strokes you know we can we can be working in kind of an esalen type type style and that, that's brilliant to have the acceptance of our bodies but we need to also accept that, well, actually, we're moving as a whole as well. So for cervical mobility, I, you know, that's going to be assisted with thoracic mobility. And there is no cervical spine or thoracic spine in our client's head. There's just the spine, and it just moves. Um, they, don't, they don't have that separation. We, we sometimes have that, that separation in our heads because it's been drilled in so that we can pass the exam. And then we, we treat it as a separate area and yes it is there are just differences but as soon as i start moving i just need all of that spine to do what it should do i don't care if it's cervical or thoracic or lumbar or you know, if it's a scapula i just need it to to move um, in an appropriate way i need each joint and therefore each tissue to give a little bit you know so one of my classroom examples is the um the kind of pretend light bulb emergency you know, if you, you know, if you're just standing neutral, and if you have, you know, if you need to change your light bulb uh, very quickly, you know, very few of us have, ever have that. But if you swing your arm up to the side, you'll feel that you know, one foot relatively pronates, one foot supinates, one hip add, and the other hip abducts. You've got a lot of lumbar and thoracic and cervical flexions and rotations all happening at the same time. So that ability to kind of just abduct the shoulder in real life requires the rest of the body to move but there are so few people that that tell the rest of that story we're brilliant at um glenohumeral rhythm 
like brilliant. But when do you actually use glenohumeral rhythm in isolation? Only whenever we go to Pilates class or when we get a physical therapy assessment. So it is it's necessary for us to to start start using these tools. All right. Thank you so much, James. You're welcome. So if you want to learn more about James and his work, you can find out at www.borntowalk.com. Now we're going to bring in Robin Scher, who's going to talk to us from the perspective of cranial sacral therapy. Thanks for joining us, Robin. Glad to be here, Haley. So talk to me about working with carpal tunnel. Carpal tunnel, another one of those diagnoses, again, where I say, who told you? What are, what are your symptoms? What does it mean? Um, because often it's not classically that you know, nerve compression or the retinaculum's too tight. I've, I've heard a host of things I'm sure most practitioners have, right? I have carpal tunnel, um, my hand goes numb. I have carpal tunnel, my shoulder hurts, seriously. And this is not, I'm not making fun of my clients. They're doing the best they can to explain their pain. They're also seeing practitioners who are throwing out diagnoses. It may also just be the last thing they heard. A, a physician may have said several things, and carpal tunnel is, is what's stuck. So I ask what brings them to me. How does this affect their life? What movements are painful? What movements aren't painful? What are they able to do? What are they not able to do? What other treatments are they getting? You know, again, I am a craniosacral therapy practitioner, so I am not any. I am not most people's first choice for an orthopedic condition. So um, there are a number of reasons why people might get to me, but often with an orthopedic condition, it is because they've gone through everybody else, and I am the weirdo on the block. Um, or they've had a family member who saw a craniosacral therapy practitioner and they can't explain what he did, but he was great and their pain's gone. At, again, not making fun, but that's also, you know, puts me in the realm of, of, you know, mystery unicorn sorcerer, which is not what I am and not what this work is. So with folks who come in with orthopedic conditions like this, I'm often doing a lot of education about what craniosacral therapy is. And is it something that they're interested in? We usually have that conversation before the first appointment. Sometimes, though, a client's husband just shows up on my table, puts a wrist out and says, I have carpal tunnel. At which point I try to do that education as quickly as possible, but also say, hey, we're going to be looking at your whole body because if you haven't noticed, you didn't just put your hand, you, you know, you didn't just like click your hand into place on your arm this morning. Right? It's been with you since birth, most likely. And uh, I want to know what could be tugging and pulling on the areas that you're having pain. And then I ask, when are you comfortable? What positions are comfortable? Great, let's recreate that on the table. So I have a ton of bolsters. And you know, with a wrist, you think you might not need that many bolsters, but I may need to have someone sidelined and, and propped in several different ways with a wrist you know, draped just so. So I have, technical term, a crap ton of bolsters. And I use them, right? And I have table extenders so that, I, so that once someone is in a comfortable position, then we can maybe begin to help their nervous system downregulate then I can do an evaluation that may show me something useful. So let's say someone walks in and they have been diagnosed with carpal tunnel syndrome um, by a medical doctor, and it indeed is a narrowing of the carpal tunnel. What is your, not necessarily strategy, but what do you see as uh, some typical or patterns of help or patterns that cre that are created in the body that you ultimately work with to help them find less discomfort? It's such a good question. And while there are clusters of things that generally show up, I, I have to say I've seen enough folks with this diagnosis where it, you know, yes, I, I want to be sure that the thoracic inlet is open. I want to be sure that there's, you know, that uh, 
that the brachial plexus has room. I want to be sure that there's good motion between the ulna and radius. So there are all sorts of things I think that I've seen over the years, and so they're in the back of my mind, but I have to, pr I have to approach this person fresh. And um, so I would say anything that promotes ease of movement. Folks who do have a medical diagnosis are often trying to avoid surgery. By the time they see me, they've also been to OT and PT and are not getting better, which means that work isn't working. Working at it, it isn't working. So how can we help the nervous system relax, create a sense of safety, and move from there? That's, that's, that's a general approach for me. I will also look at fluid flow and see if some lymphatic drainage may help, always within a craniosacral context. I have found that actually to be really helpful. I found that to, as, as I'm thinking back on it, I, I cannot think of a case where I haven't used some lymphatic drainage with a case of diagnosed carpal tunnel syndrome. It's helping fluid find new waves out of an area. Thank you, Robin. Thanks. That was Robin Scher, and you can learn more about her through her website at livinginthebody.net. And if you want to learn more about craniosacral therapy in general or its trainings, you can visit upledger.com. So now I'm going to bring in Marjorie Brook, who will give us her thoughts as an expert in scar tissue. Welcome, Marjorie. Hi, Haley. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about carpal tunnel. There's a common problem here all the time, isn't it? You see it walking in your door. Let's see. So carpal tunnel, the release uh, is excessive scar tissue buildup, right? That's basically it from repetitive use. Unfortunately, um, I'm sure many people on this program have already said it, the surgery actually is incorrect. The surgery treats the symptoms, not the problem. They go in and they, uh, they cut the uh, tendon running across from carpal to carpal because it has collapsed on the tunnel. But the reason that the ligament has collapsed is due to repetitive stress. In other words, we've used these, there's, if you go by the tensegrity model, the way we're based, the bones and are all lined up with a certain amount of space between them. And they're held in place by your muscles, your muscles, when you overuse them, whether it's typing, whatever it is that you're doing too much of, and don't uh, stretch and take care of them, they tighten. And the first thing that you lose when your muscles get too tight is the space between the bones. So the bones get in too tight, which we're supposed to be in a certain place, which doesn't keep enough tension on that ligament and that ligament collapses and pinches the nerves. So the idea of the surgery is, well, let's, well, first the idea is to immobilize the wrist. Is it not? Well, there's a problem because if the, it's already restricted and not moving and too tight, if you put a brace on it and don't use it, it's only going to atrophy more there's no range of motion. There's no circulation going through or limited circulation causing more inflammation and more scar tissue to build up. So they brace it. The brace doesn't work. What a shock. So then they go in, they do the surgery, they cut the ligament. Oh, it's supposed to be better. And the majority of the time it's not. Why? Uh, let's not even get into what that the purpose of that ligament was there in the first place, but they didn't address the problem, which was the repetitive use and the tight muscles. So the muscles continue to get tighter as they try to rehab it and go back less and less space. Now the nerve endings and the muscle uh, tendons are slipping between the bones and continuing to get pinched and hurt. They didn't fix the problem. Okay. You know, the scar tissue can build up behind the flexor tendons and the median nerve. It can prevent them from sliding and gliding normally within the tunnel. That's the first part of as carpal tunnel starts to build before we even start to lose space and we have pain, you have loss of range of motion due to that. You know, um, all of these can be addressed, all the symptoms of, of carpal tunnel through proper stretching, uh, myofascial work, scar work, adhesions, and then uh, body mechanics uh, re-education, workstation re-education. Um, I, I continually tell my clients that are parents that have kids going off to college that besides the laptop, they need to get the little rubber rollout um, uh, keyboard because this way they can't do it while they're in class typing away. But when they get home back to the dorm room, they can put the laptop up on books, not laying in bed, 
but up on books on their desk, take out the, the portable um, keyboard, put their hands down where their hands belong and type in proper body mechanics, right? There's things that can be done that they don't even realize and they let the kids go off and they're heading for the carpal tunnel right then and there because everything is laptops and phones. Um, and again, remember everybody on laptops, it's not just about the wrists and the elbows, the heads are down. Everything's down and in the wrong position. So now you've got restriction in the brachial plexus. Again, scar tissue and limited range. So you can correct these or head them off at the pass by doing proper stretching, proper range of motion uh, activities, and doing a lot of myofascial release, releasing all the scar tissue adhesions and any trigger points that come up. That's just before it even gets so bad that they go to surgery, okay? So you have the short-term effects of surgery, such as the incision pain. Well, that's scar tissue right there, right? That we, um, you start right away, uh, after, right after the surgery for the first three months, we're doing very light lymphatics. We're doing very light myofascial release. We're getting the, uh, the collagen to lay down in the proper direction. We've got it being flushed. All of that's great. Then if that still doesn't work, we need to move on because, you know, once the incision pain has faded and this, and the swelling, there's that unseen complication that may be lurking beneath the skin, which is the excessive scar tissue, right? Layers deep, it can significantly reduce function and movement uh, months after surgery. And on the skin surface, the visible lingering scars may be noticeable enough to really bother patients, right? In regard to scar tissue. Um, you know, that can be very upsetting to people. Visible scars can trigger um, uh, PTSD and all kinds of issues uh, in that manner. Um, so we need to work the tissue uh, and, and, and try to reduce the visible scar, reduce the restrictions after the surgery. And before the surgery, we really want to try to prevent, you don't really need the surgery if you reestablish re range of motion. And if the surgery happens and so and someone comes in to see you after surgery, is the treatment vastly different from prior surgery to if you're trying to head off before surgery versus helping them recover after the surgery? Uh, it's, is it vastly? We're still going to be doing the, the range of motion stretching, but we're going to be doing it a lot slower and a lot lighter because the body has to recover from the trauma of the surgery because that's what all surgery is, that it is a trauma. Um, and again, we want to make sure that we're properly healing. Also, you're now also dealing with immobilization way more than you did before the surgery, right? We also don't know what happened during the surgery. Anytime you deal with a surgery, you have to be aware of the position the body was held in during the surgery for how long, you know, what was going on. The trauma that has now been established in the tissue now needs to be addressed, from the surgery itself. And it might not just be the wrist, it can be the shoulder, it could be in the neck. Um, it could be the way they've been sleeping now because they're now babying and hurting from the surgery or their PT maybe was very aggressive. And, 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 and not to mention the emotional and the frustration behind it. All right, thank you so much, Marjorie. You're welcome. If you wanna learn more about Marjorie and her work, you can learn more at marjoriebrookseminars.com. Well, that brings us to the end of our guests for this episode. But before I let you go, I wanted to do a little bit of a wrap-up of the condition as a whole, kind of bringing in some thoughts and themes from the first episode as well as this one. And the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, the, multiple, the multiple crush syndrome, where the median nerve irritation happens at multiple places along its line. So the fascial sheath uh, can get snagged and trapped in fascia or irritated in many places along its path. Uh, there are seven to eight most likely points along its path, uh, including the nerve root, under the scalenes, underneath the clavicle and first rib, under the pec minor, near the elbow as it passes the bicipital aponeurosis, which is also very close to the pronator teres, which that one is probably the most common site of irritation, that pronator teres. So this can cause pain anywhere along the median nerve, including the wrist and hand. So noticing that there is the possible misdiagnosis of carpal tunnel uh, for this multiple crush syndrome, uh, that's medial nerve 
irritation on, on other points in the line, not necessarily actually at the wrist joint at the carpal tunnel. And this is perhaps when surgery for carpal tunnel syndrome is less effective than it should be, you know, where perhaps a misdiagnosis happens and then they go in and do surgery and it actually ends up creating more scar tissue in the carpal tunnel joint than was there before and you, the problem is not solved. And to prevent the misdiagnosis, we can use a couple of good tests. Uh, there's the Phelan's test, uh, which is a good assessment protocol where you put the backs of the, cl- the hands together in kind of an upside-down prayer position. Uh, and if that stimulates the same nerve pain, that's a good indicator of carpal tunnel syndrome. It's also important to follow this rule when working with irritated nerves as a massage therapist is, is what I'm doing making it worse or increasing sensation? Because that's actually the last thing we want to do when we're working with clients with nerve irritation is to irritate it further. Uh, We can look to free or disentangle or untrap the nerves as long as we don't create nerve pain in the process. And the main goal when working with people with carpal tunnel syndrome is to do anything we can do to take the pressure off the median nerve at the side of the wrist. Now this includes manual work from softening the forearm flexors to taking pressure off the distal tendons that could be creating a small amount of inflammation in the area. And again, multiple guests mentioned uh, about working around the, the median nerve as it bifurcates the pronator teres, uh, because again, it is the most common uh, source for that multiple crush uh, syndrome. It's also good to know when you have a trapped median nerve up by the pronator teres, you could also have carpal tunnel syndrome at the same time. So just because one exists doesn't mean the other doesn't also exist. Uh, So we as massage therapists can help free up that nerve by the pronator teres, and that could in turn help improve the client's perception of pain from the carpal tunnel syndrome, but it also may not solve it entirely. Uh, So as more of a preventative measure, I think it's always nice to kind of come back to what can we do to get ahead of this thing as a possibly instead of just working to try and fix or work to try and alleviate uh, people's symptoms or work through their, their, their pain patterns. And to help clients use their whole body when doing repetitive actions. Uh, we talked to Irene Lyon and she was talking about how um, people using their full physical form even if the action can be done with just, say, the wrists, like let's say swinging a hammer, uh, instead to put your whole body into it and uh, distributing that stress throughout the whole, the whole body across multiple joints uh, allows for the system to work in more harmony and puts a little bit less stress on those particular joints. Um, the more we isolate our limbs from our trunk and the rest of ourselves, uh, the more stress that burden is not shared across the rest of the body. So that's it for my thoughts on carpal tunnel. I hope you enjoyed them, and I'll be back in two weeks when we talk about osteoarthritis of the knee. Well, that's a wrap for this episode. A big thank you to all of my experienced and esteemed panelists. I continue to be honored that they let me poke and prod their minds on these subjects. It wouldn't be possible without them. Please do rate us on iTunes or through whichever podcast app that you listen to us, and feel free to visit us on Facebook and suggest new topics for me to cover in future episodes. Until then, be well.